How dare you? This is a quality of life issue. Hope in the face of uncertainty. Which side of history will you be on? Hi everyone, and welcome back to Brace for Impact. This is Catherine, and I'm so happy to be back. And this is Leith, and we're so happy to have Catherine back. Thank you to everyone who joined Ryan and I last week in discussing capitalism and its alternatives with Josh Sisman. After getting deep into policy and government systems last Thursday, this week, we'll be discussing sustainable energy systems. Sustainable energy systems, or commonly known as green, clean, or renewable energy, are the alternative means of generating the energy we could use on a day-to-day -day basis without excessively damaging the environment the way that coal, gas, or oil does, which has been historically used in our energy systems today. You may have even heard of some. Some of the more well-known sustainable energy systems are solar, wind, ocean, hydroelectric, hydrogen, and biomass. A couple of these may have not sounded as familiar towards the end, but thankfully we have someone with us today with quite the extensive knowledge and experience working with energy systems. This week our guest is Melissa Rath. Hey guys, great to be here. Mel is the former president of Net Impact and has coped many times in the field of sustainable energy design and development. So Mel, thank you so much for coming on. We're very happy to have you here. And to start off, maybe you can just tell us how you have gotten so involved with sustainable energy systems and kind of what are some major things people listening should know about them. The way that I really got into sustainability as a whole was that I grew up in the Adirondack Park, which is the largest state park in the country. And while I was living there, I wasn't a huge environmental advocate uh, because it's just kind of the norm where I lived. So when I moved to Boston, I realized that that lifestyle and that mentality was something that was really important to me. Um, so I knew I wanted to work in sustainability in some sense of what that word is. Uh, and then I happened to be majoring in engineering, uh, specifical mechanic specifically mechanical engineering, and that is when I fell in love with energy. Um, basically, all forms of it, energy conversion, the theory behind energy, but most importantly, how we use it and how it is everything and everywhere around us. Um, so once I started realizing that, uh, the perfect... Um, intersection between the two was working in sustainable energy, obviously. And so since then, I did a one-month study abroad in Brazil, where was my first introduction to sustainable energy systems, especially international sustainable energy systems and how different people across the world um, use energy and view the concept of it. Uh, then I, worked, I had three different co-ops within different sectors of the energy industry. Um, my first co-op, I did energy efficiency for Massachusetts General Hospital, um, where that's where I really learned about how society uses energy and how much of it we use for different aspects of our life. The next co-op that I had, I designed solar farms for a company called Nexamp, uh, which does utility-scale community solar, uh, and that's another way. Well, obviously, that's first where I learned about lots of different types of renewable energy specifically, uh, but also um, what a distributed grid looks like, how we're going to be modernizing the grid in the next few decades, and how our energy can be much more community-centric. And then last, my last co-op, um, I worked for a company called Forum Energy. It's a long-duration battery startup uh, at Greentown Labs. And that was by far my most technical um, job, but that's where I really learned the importance of energy storage and how it is going to be essential to any sort of wide-scale modernization of the grid and integration of uh, renewable energy. And so of that, I'd say the most important thing that people should know about energy is that 
it is integral to every aspect of, I'm not going to say human life, uh, but at least American life mm -hmm. and the way that we live. And nobody really understands it, and that is why we get into positions where your utility bills skyrocket during blackouts. Um, and there's this so many myths about renewable energy because people are just so afraid of what change could mean because we rely on it so much. Mm. Right, we're resistant to completely switching the way that we rely on everything that we do in all aspects of our day-to-day -day lives, and people are hesitant to it. I think when people think of energy systems, um, maybe if they haven't learned about it a lot in classes, um, people often think about the argument between non-renewable and rene renewable energy, and with your experience in classes, you're about to graduate, you were the president of Net Impact for a while, and your experiences. Um, what does this debate look like? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm not biased, mm -hmm. but I have been studying the science, the engineering, the physical basic principles of all the different ways that we can generate energy. And solar energy and wind energy were actually, they predated fossil fuels. I mean, think of old, like windmills in old Western Europe. Right. Um, solar has been used to heat water. It was actually used in its photoelectric form like around the time of the early 1900s, mm -hmm. um, right when the car industry kind of took off. And um, fossil fuels have been subsidized for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. And the motor vehicle industry, because the other forms of energy like weren't able to support that industry, um, that's kind of one of the biggest pushes to why fossil fuel became so rampant, was transportation. Mm. Um, and that's because electric cars weren't really um, a thing. And Henry Ford, um, the founder of Ford mm -hmm. Motors, obviously, had a really big influence on the disappearance of uh, solar and wind energy. Mm. You've mentioned a couple of phrases or kind of um, words that you might use in the co-ops you've had, like the grid, uh, hydro something I, I don't even know what it means what what is what is renewable energy like in its simplest form like how can you put it in really basic terms so even myself I can get a good grasp of what we're going to be listening to today yeah I mean that's a great question that a lot of people don't really ask um, because it's such a buzzword right now and so there's actually a really big difference between renewable energy and clean energy even mm -hmm. though a lot of energies overlap and have both um, so renewable energy basically means that it cannot be depleted mm -hmm. um, so solar can't be depleted. It's coming from the sun. Obviously, like in a few billion years, potentially it is. Um, wind is actually a indirect form of solar energy because the sun creates all of our wind patterns on Earth. So again, you can't deplete that. Um, the moon creates tides and waves. And tidal and wave are also renewable energy sources. Um, some of the energy sources that kind of are within the debate of whether they're renewable are um, biomass and nuclear. Mm -hmm. So nuclear uses uranium and while there is a large, like a, a good amount of uranium on the planet, it's not um, indepletable. Mm -hmm. We could absolutely run out of it if we wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, and biomass, again, can we run out of biomass on the planet? No, not really, but it is something that has to be constantly regrown. It takes energy to like, and what is that regrowth? It. What is biomass? Yeah, so biomass is literally any sort of biological material. Mm. Wood is the quintessential biomass. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's biomass is a large part of um, renewable energy around the world because so many um, countries still burn wood as a fuel for cooking, for heating. Um, but in the more high-tech sense, biomass is oftentimes algae blooms that are being farmed mm -hmm. or ethanol is mm -hmm. a biomass, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, and so you were making the distinction between clean energy and renewable energy. These last two that you listed, how are these not clean? Is yeah. that where you were going? Yeah, exactly. So obviously fossil fuels are neither clean nor renewable. Mm -hmm. uh, clean, most people often think of carbon emissions, obviously with climate change as a looming issue. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of fossil fuels also emit really harmful pollutants that hurt the immediate environment around them, mm -hmm. like um, NOx and SOx, which are nitrous oxides and sulfuric oxides. And there's so many other um, pollutants. And so basically, wind, solar, tidal, wave, um, and hydroelectric um, to an extent are all renewable and clean, mm -hmm. whereas fossil fuels are neither clean nor renewable. And then um, biomass and nuclear could honestly be debated um, for both. Um, I do just want to point out um, hydroelectricity, while it is both clean and renewable, has really large environmental impacts because unless an existing waterfall um, is already there, like Niagara Falls, mm -hmm. you have to dam a river mm. to create that pressure differential, which you derive energy from. And if it doesn't displace indigenous peoples, it's absolutely destroying the ecosystem that that river previously had. Yep. And so it, even renewable and clean energy sources can have other environmental impacts. Same with tidal, right? With the um, environment that was existing there, the animals that were in the water, like there's lots of like impacts that a lot of people probably don't take into account. Um, and obviously no system is perfect, yeah. but it is an important conversation to have. And, like you just said, Catherine, you've said too, Mo, no system is perfect. And um, I'm sure we can go into some of the implications with all of these different um, renewables or sustainable energies, but you mentioned a bunch so far. You mentioned solar, wind, um, wave, tidal, hydroelectric, hydrogen, biomass. Before we continue to get into the conversation about what are they, how would they better the world, why, why do we need them? What, what point are we at in our use of fossil fuels that these are the sources of energy we need to move to? Yeah, um, obviously a lot of people have a general concept of what fossil fuels are doing. Mm -hmm. They are throwing the Earth's natural carbon cycle way off balance mm. by um, not only emitting carbon in the process of um, procuring those fuels by clear-cutting forests and mining, um, but then also when they're burned um, for heat, or they're burned to spin turbines to create electricity, they emit all the carbon um, that they had previously been storing. That carbon is what is causing uh, climate change. And not gonna go into all the science because it can get really complicated, but basically the carbon in the atmosphere is making it so that the radiation from the sun gets trapped in the Earth's atmosphere and that is um, heating the Earth but um, it's not called global warming anymore, it's called climate change. So that heating of the earth can happen disproportionately in different areas. And it, in general, is just messing with the entire meteorologi meteorological system um, of the earth, changing wind patterns, changing jet streams, even changing tidal patterns. And obviously, um, as we've seen in Texas, as we've seen in California and Australia, there are very real repercussions um, to climate change, and it is happening now. 
Right, so you mentioned what's happening in Texas. Can you talk a little bit more about um, why this is happening now, for example? Yeah, so um, the one in Texas can be a little abstract to think about. Uh, but basically, there is a jet stream of really cold air that comes from the Arctic. And it usually only comes down um, to nor the northern part of continental America. Think Montana, think New York, um, think Michigan places where it's normally supposed to be cold and snowy. Um, but because the way that the jet stream has been changing with the warming um, of the Arctic, that jet stream has been getting pulled further south. And so you're going to see that big dip um, that comes through Texas and we get unprecedented snowstorms and causing power outages uh, like we just saw a few weeks ago. Yeah, and you mentioned before, um, you've used the word grids and you've used the word power outages and specifically mentioned the bills that come after those power outages. Those are some things we're seeing in Texas right now. Can you talk about what it means for the quote-unquote grid? This is still an abstract word for me. <laughs> what it means for the grid and like where these charges come from? and Yeah, what this means for local communities. Yeah, absolutely. Texas is a prime example of the intersection of um, wealth disparities and energy disparities. Um, coming head-to-head -head with climate change. And so basically what you have in Texas is a very old energy system um, and grid, grid, sorry, when I say grid, uh, it's the electric grid, which mm. is made up of power sources. Um, you could think of that as a coal plant. You could think of it as a wind farm. You could think of it as a solar farm. Um, all those are different types of energy generation plants that we currently use, and they're connected by massive transmission lines that I'm sure you've seen when you're driving out in the countryside. Um, and then those transmission lines um, connect everywhere across the US. And um, then there's smaller distribution lines that connect right to your house. So basically what that means is all of our buildings um, are somehow connected through wires that are running um, electricity. And it is one of the greatest engineering feats of um, literally all time. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> but um, to get back to how the electric grid in Texas went down, this is going back to the fact that people don't really understand energy and it's because rightfully so, it can be really complicated. So what is happening with the electric grid is that the power that's being generated through coal, solar, wind, whatever energy source you're using, has to almost exactly match the power that's being consumed by the individuals on that grid. And so when a power plant goes down, you think, oh, it's just like not quite enough energy, but maybe some of the houses have energy and some don't. Uh, but what happens is when that, um, the generation and the demand are mismatched, the entire line um, gets messed up. And again, there's lots of like specific electrical things that cause that, but basically just think about that. If the power being supplied does not equal the power being used, everything goes down. And the reason why the um, power plants in Texas went down was because of the snowstorm and the cold mm -hmm. that they were experiencing. Places like that are not built for conditions like that because it never happens. Right. So why would you build and spend extra money on something that you're not going to need? Mm -hmm. And so coal plants and wind plants alike um, were susceptible to this because of the way that they were built. And then because it was so cold, people were, in Texas were suffering so horribly for the same reason the power plants went down their houses have terrible insulation mm -hmm. and the less money you have the less insulation you have no. and so you see these poor communities being so much more impacted i mean 
just as we see with everything. But um, energy equity is such an important part of revolutionizing our grid and in that transition to clean energy and distributed energy, which basically means that energy gets generated um, within communities that are using it and they have more of a say in how it's being generated and how much it costs and all of that. Right, and that relates back to our first episode when we talked about Biden's climate policy plans where he emphasizes the need for environmental justice, which we then talked about in our second episode. Frankly, like, are we even capable of becoming resilient to this fast enough? Are we going to see um, mitigation tactics used across the whole country? Like, what is this even going to look like? And how can we learn from this and past problems that we've had as a result of the fossil fuel industry causing these issues? Well, that is a big, scary question that utility companies and policymakers alike are frantically trying to solve. Um, I would say that the integration of renewable energy in our grid over the past 10 years has really made us more aware of our weather patterns, has made us understand how our energy generation is related to our weather. I mean, to understand how much solar generation you're going to provide in a year, you have to understand how much sun you're going to get in a year and the location that you're in. To understand how much wind power you're going to get, you have to know exactly um, not exactly, but you have to know how much wind you're going to be getting and what time of the day it's going to be happening. And you have to be constantly checking it and making sure that the energy you're outputting from these natural variable resources is matching the demand that you're getting. And because we're much more in touch with these weather patterns, um, that's making utility companies much more aware of the effects of climate change and how climate change um, could be affecting our energy demand like we saw in Texas when people needed more heat than they've ever needed. Um, this is the case in a lot of places. There's societal behaviors that in mass really affect the amount of power demand that we see even over entire states. Um, this is one of my favorite examples is in the UK, um, the people that were running the electric grid kept seeing this massive power spike at like 3, 4 p.m. and they could not figure out what was happening and what they finally realized was that it was tea time and everybody and their mother in the UK was turning on their electric um, kettles and it was shooting up the power demand. And so what's really interesting is that human behaviors and societal um, habits and tendencies play a huge role in how we um, predict how much power we're going to be generating. And this is what um, one of the biggest issues with renewable energy, why we haven't seen um, much more integration of it, is because um, the way that humans generally use energy, and I'm going to say Americans now because I can't really speak to other countries, mm -hmm. the way that Americans use energy is that they wake up, they cook, they turn on the lights, they maybe do some last minute laundry, they use a decent amount of power in the morning, then everyone goes to work, and you're in offices and the lights are on, and like there's a little bit of energy, but most of the stuff that's going on in your home is off and it, it takes a big dip in the middle of the day uh, when the sun is shining the most and we're going to get back to that and then you come home you cook dinner you feed your kids you take a shower you do so many things from like 6 to 10 p.m. and then it drops again and this is what they call the duck curve um, it basically is just showing how um, Americans use energy and one of the biggest issues with this is that um, solar power which has been the most um, integrated renewable energy source on our electric grid has a completely inverse um, relation to that. It 
only um, starts generating electricity at sunrise, let's say like seven, eight o'clock, depending on the time of year, mm -hmm. and its peak is at noon. Um, when we're using when, the least amount of energy. Exactly, exactly. And so that is why you can only have so much solar on the grid right now. Um, that is until we get viable energy storage. What is that? What is energy storage? Is, does that pose a problem in itself? Because I know with collecting all the energy, you then need to store in what I imagine to be fields or a different place that take up a lot of land. Um, is that the issue with not having enough energy storage, is not having the facilities to do it? Or is it the technology? Yeah, so I mean, it's all the above. There's so many different reasons why energy storage isn't being implemented in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest reason is technology. Um, all batteries up until about 20 years ago were really solely for the use of electronics. Your computer, your phone, um, they have an entirely different purpose than the types of batteries that we're trying to put on the electric grid. And there have been so many different companies coming up with new batteries or new ways to make batteries that could make it more compatible with the type of use that we're looking for. And basically what that use means is we want to be able to store a lot of energy, but it doesn't need to supply um, as high and as quick of a power source as like electronics or let's say electric vehicles do. And so um, what's really interesting to me about energy storage is in its concept, it just means storing energy. Mm -hmm. And batteries are just one example of that. Um, they're an electrochemical energy storage, which basically just means that the chemicals themselves are storing the electricity to then be released later. Um, but you can store energy in all forms. Um, one of Another alternative uh, that gets used in like mountainous or hilly regions mm -hmm. is if there's a lake at a high elevation to store energy, what you do is you pump water from a lower lake into the higher lake when you're looking to store the energy, when you have a surplus on the grid. And then when you need more power, um, you use the elevation difference as a potential energy storage and all the water that runs back down into the lower lake goes through a turbine and generates electricity. So there are so many different ways to store energy. That's um, a really good example, though, to picture it. Yeah, exactly. So there's potential energy storage, there's electrochemical energy storage, but there's also thermal energy storage. I actually, um, my capstone project that I did last semester, because I'm graduating this year, um, was all about thermoelectric generators. And what those do is they generate electricity from a temperature difference. And so my project was trying to figure out if this was a new viable option for a small scale type of energy storage. So there are all different types of um, like research and ideas going around this whole concept of how do we store the energy um, during the day that renewables are creating that we need at night. What is What do you mean by small scale? Like I can have it in my pocket and I can... Yeah, great question. So basically the project that we were working on was mm -hmm. targeting desert communities that were off of a main electric grid. So it would be kind okay. of like residential scale. Yeah. This is a lot of new information, <laughs> super informative. Um, let's circle back a little bit to renewable energy. And, you know, we talked about all of these problems in Texas and the UK, another example. But what can the future of these energy systems look like before, you know, we're reaching a point with climate change where we're reaching our tipping point, point of no return, where the effects are going to get worse and worse, and that's really terrifying. And there's a lot of confusing information out there about what we can even do about it. But what 
what do you think is going to happen in the next five to ten years? Yeah, so I mean, I have this utopia in my head of what an entirely green, renewable, clean electric grid that is community driven and people have changed their societal behaviors to adapt to the way that we need to be generating electricity and decreasing their energy consumption. Um, but that's not a reality. Um, it's what keeps me innovating, what keeps me motivated, but I can't um, like claim to that, mm -hmm. cling to it. And so in reality, what is going to happen is we're going to continuously, slowly integrate renewable energy until it comes to a tipping point where we have real policy that demands that electric companies and like the energy companies and electric grid companies allow for a much um, faster integration rate. Because right now, um, the biggest hindrance to renewable energy integration is the grid companies that own all these distribution lines. So you can have a generation plant, but you need to be able to get it to people. And the way to get it to people is by using all of this existing electrical infrastructure that is also failing, by the way, because it was all built 100 years ago. And you have to get approval from these electric companies wherever your power plant is. And it is the most time and money consuming part of any of these projects. So until we really have a strong force that is making um, these distribution lines more of an open source, um, community driven space, it's going to be continuing at a pretty slow and sometimes even decreasing rate. Massachusetts has been decreasing its solar integration because it's just oversaturated uh -huh. and the grid can't handle um, what's there already. Yeah. You mentioned policy, and you then mentioned what kind of stake the electric companies and the grid companies have in this. What is it that, policy-wise, what what would you like to see that would lead us to this greater integration of it, or this utopia you have in your head down on the a, line? On a broad scale, but then also in the implementation of uh, local governments yeah. in these communities, what that would look like. Yeah, so on a, on a large scale, um, subsidies are one of the Subsidies and tax breaks are the primary ways uh, that policies have been helping um, renewable energy companies. Um, but as I mentioned before, the policies that would really be helping is enforcing these um, distribution line owners, which are basically your electric company, your national grid, your Eversource, if you're local, um, forcing them to have a certain quota of like renewable energy generated every year and increasing that so that they have no choice but to upgrade their systems and adapt to the new industry that's happening. Okay. Um, and so on the local scale, what's actually really interesting is obviously, um, as I mentioned, <laughs> the power companies are a huge hindrance, but local towns can also be a massive hindrance to renewable energy plants. I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. And so, I mean, this, is, this term has been existence, in existence since energy has been generated. Um, wealthy suburban neighborhoods didn't mm -hmm. want power plants in their backyard. Mm -hmm. Neither would I, um, but it's been transitioned um, into solar farms, you know, and wind farms. People don't want them in their towns and their neighborhoods. They don't think that they're aesthetically pleasing. Exactly, <laughs> or they think it's going to kill all the birds, or they think it's unsafe for their children, or there's so many different reasons yeah. why people will complain, but it's really just that they're averse to change and that they don't want to be a part of it. They don't want to think that it's their problem, but it is. I mean, and so helping your towns be more solar and wind friendly is a great way to help at a small scale. Now, I'm at a large scale. It's electing policy leaders that are actually going to get stuff done 
And the other small scale thing you can do, I'm going to plug the, um, the company that I'll be working for in July. It's also where I co-opt. Uh, it's called Nexamp. But we're a community solar company, so basically it's just a subscription service. Um, and there are lots of community solar companies out there. You don't have to use mine. Um, can we get sponsored? <laughs> yeah. Is this a post-grad job? Yes, Congratulations. It is. Thank you, thank you. Um, but that's one of the best ways to have um, a really quick impact is by subscribing and using the renewable energy um, from these farms that are already being built. Um, because you're giving more money to the companies and to the people that are trying to make the change. Yeah. You mentioned people who don't want solar panels in their backyard. They're really adverse to this change. How can you phrase it to make them care? Well, what is something you could tell them to make them understand why this is dire? And something, if you had one conversation with these people, you would say this to them. What would it be? Um, in a more pessimistic point of view to somebody <laughs> that I would hope is empathetic, I would say mm -hmm. a solar farm in your yard is going to take down a coal plant in a marginalized community's yard. And I mean, if that doesn't get them, it's kind of hard to have a conversation after that. Mm. Um, That's a good point. And that brings us back to what you said earlier with, you know, we're all reluctant to change. It's in our human nature. But we're also not going to want to see, you know, the detrimental impacts of climate change continue to escalate. And acting now is going to change so much of what we're going to see in the next five to ten years and longer. Um, do you have any final thoughts to leave us with, leave our listeners with? Pessimistic or inspirational. <laughs> you can leave us with another picture of utopia. <laughs> Don't be complacent. Um, the mm. reason why utility companies have been able to do everything that they've done between climate change and pollution of marginalized communities to allowing our energy infrastructure to fall apart is their consumers' complacency mm -hmm. and their consumers' just general unawareness and lack of knowledge about the most important thing of society, which is what makes me so interested in what I do. Awesome. That's thank you awesome. so much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was so awesome to have you right before you graduate because Mel is the reason that Leith and I joined yeah. Net Impact <laughs> and have a podcast now. Um, she played a huge role in us making it, so we're so happy to have you on here. Um, and again, you know, thank you listeners yeah. for coming back this week. Join us next week on another episode of Brace for Impact. Yeah, thank you, Mel. Absolutely. It's very true. Mel built Net Impact. What is that Northeastern? And she's definitely a great person to have on to leave us with a whole bunch of knowledge and a whole bunch of things. So thank you very much again. You guys are going to make me cry. Thank you so much <laughs> for having me. This podcast is just like such an amazing culmination of all the work that everyone's been doing. Especially Mel. Especially Mel. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you, guys. Um, and again, as always. As always, you got this stuff. Um, thank you to our editor, Greg Gold, and to our graphic designer, Brand Fogarty, for all the hard work that they do every week to make this podcast happen. Bye -bye. See you next week. <laughs>